Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. I am your host, Arden Castle, and this week's episode will feature an HPP author and original paper. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this episode of the HPP Podcast. My name is Arden Castle and I'll be the host for this episode. Today, I am with Sinead Birch and Ryan Petaway, and they have both published for health promotion practice. Ryan has written for Resources, Frameworks, and Perspectives, and Sinead has written a commentary. Both of their works were published in 2021, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce them and ask them to say a little bit about themselves. So, Sinead, would you like to go first? Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Sinead, Sinead Birch, and I am a doctoral candidate at Teachers College at Columbia University. I'm studying within the Department of Health Behavior, and I am focused on arts and public health, specifically how we use theater or arts and cultural practices to promote health equity. I also am a Gates Millennium Scholar, as well as an RWJF Health Policy Research Scholar. And I'm excited that in this time, now in my fourth year of my program, while working on my dissertation, I'm also reflecting on how I'm also an actor, a professional actor who has not been able to perform in a show uh, since the start of the pandemic. My last show, The Treasurer by Max Posner was at the Lyric Stage in Boston and we close with respect to public health. And so I'm a theater maker, but not making theater just yet, but more is in store while I'm working on my dissertation. I'm from both Southern California and South Jersey. I moved in the summer before sixth grade to help my mom care for my Nana, who was sick with lung cancer and emphysema. And so my understanding of health was alongside my coming to understand illness. Excellent. Thank you for sharing some of your practice and big exciting news in the academic department of your life. And then Ryan, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Brian Petaway. I am an assistant professor and social epidemiologist in OETSU PhD School of Public Health. And I'm um, near the end of my fifth year here out here in Portland, Portland, Oregon. Uh, to be completely honest, Portland was never ever on my radar for any purpose in life. It's where the jobs were when I was finishing my dissertation when I was at Berkeley. And I uh, saw an announcement, met some folks, had some conversations, and it, the vibes were good and the focus of the program and as it was growing, it felt good, and so I landed here, even though as a social epi person does community engage work, uh, CBPR, community-based participatory research, and as somebody that focuses on place and health and the history of place and place making, being um, in that field, you, you learn some things about the state of Oregon historically and presently, and of course, Portland. And so for those reasons, Portland was never really on my, my radar, but now that I'm here and I've had a chance to kind of uh, get a feel for things and build some community here, I can see that there's a lot of possibility and potential here for the type of work that I do. Before I uh, did the doctorate, I was a social epidemiologist and chief epi at the Baltimore City Health Department. So my background is applied work, working with communities um, collaboratively on a lot of projects, but also doing a lot of like sitting at the desk data analysis on neighborhoods and health and social determinants. I'm sure we'll come back to this conversation a little bit later. And before that, so I'm originally from the Pittsburgh area, just outside of Pittsburgh, uh, still middle Ohio. I always say that I uh, was born in a red line city. I grew up in sundown towns and was raised in segregated, low-income and public housing. 
And I think that the combination of those things, redlining, relationship to covenants, segregation, low income, all those things, and of course, being the Pittsburgh area too, you're talking about like air quality and uh, all that stuff. I'd say very much so. I say all the time and I really mean it. Like I think my entire life has been like an N of one in like a longitudinal research study on social epidemiology. And so I think it's no accident that I ended up where I'm at and doing the work that I'm doing. And, um, and a part of ways that I, I did that process that then growing up and process it now is through art um, and specifically poetry. And it's nice to, in the last year or so, to actually kind of recover that. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be sharing this space with you both. And it sounds like public health has definitely been a big part of both of your lived experience from a very young age and has transformed and shows up in your artistic practice. And so, you know, even given the pandemic right now, I'd like to kind of reflect back. Can you tell me what your artistic practice looks like right now, whether that's right right now or kind of in general right now? Yeah, sure. So just in response to Ryan, what you were talking about in your experience, like I remember when my Nana was first diagnosed with lung cancer and emphysema, like I had this very like personal, like anti-smoker stance and I blamed her for her addiction. And it was only through becoming more a part of like student mobilization organizations that taught me about big tobacco that I realized the way that they had antagonized and specifically like used marketing to exploit her and became, you know, against big tobacco. So I don't know, I just, I, as you were saying that, I just was reminded of how like in middle school and high school, I was talking about all of these numbers and had no idea. Anyway, that was a tangent. But my practice today, right now, this week has mostly been, my artistic practice has been reading and sitting still. I actually put the pen down. About four weeks ago, I took a grief sabbatical. And that also meant a little bit of like no pressure to creatively produce, but just hold the container that I'm like living in as I process grief and premature death. So I listen to music, I set a timer and move my body gently. And I've just been thinking, but I'm excited because June 1st is actually my day of unzipping and, and writing. And so I'm excited that today is the first day that I am doing what I used to do, which was morning pages and evening pages and just getting my thoughts and observations out because we take in so much on a day-to-day -day basis, just as human beings living in crisis. Excellent. And you're coming out of your cocoon into this wonderful conversation and I am. It's really kickstarting. I really haven't been talking about this for a couple of weeks. So I'm excited to reflect in this way with you and Ryan. Yeah. And I love that you're kind of already, we're addressing those, those systems that are, you know, keeping us oppressed and that public health is all about, you know, this community perspective. It's not about blaming individuals for, you know, the situations that they end up in and then really understanding how and why these things are happening. But once again, tangent, we're going back to Ryan. Just tell me a little bit about what your artistic practice looks like now. Yeah, so about this tangent thing, I don't know if it's tangent, I think this might be the conversation. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's crazy, you know, uh, Sinead, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, obviously I didn't know the story you shared uh, about your family, but same in, in my household, my mom's a smoker. I just remember she used to keep like cigarettes, packs of cigarettes, Virginia Super Slims and Newports in a freezer. You know, like low-income single parent making 18K a year with three cents. Like, you know, like, it, but there, that was like the thing, like that was like the, the, the pool and the lure and the, and the strength of addiction and not having resources and things of that nature, right? Of course, we're in an area that has like bottom 10 
cities and metro areas for air quality, right? So you put all that in a, in a bag and you get COPD and you get asthma and you get lung cancer, right? But I remember when I went to start my public health program at Michigan, the first time that I saw the theory of plant behavior and I literally laughed out loud, like no exaggeration. I laughed, like I laughed because it was so victim blaming, pathologizing and context blind and power blind. And like, it didn't care anything about poverty or segregation or sexism or gender. Like, it didn't care about any of those things, right? It was literally just about like, how can we just get someone to like do this little, like, and so I think that uh, I was feeling everything you just said. And I think that that in many ways for me, it was probably the starting point that got me into thinking about how to think differently and deeper and more broadly and creatively in terms of what I bring into the public health field. But to get back to the more center of the conversation, right now <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not writing about those things. I'm not writing about COPD. Actually I did, I take that back in the, in the journal and the, the issue I did mention COPD and then uh, the particular tools piece. But uh, mostly right now, my creative practice, it's been poetry. I originally went to college to do poetry to the University of Virginia. I went there, I chose UVA because I had a creative writing program and I'm not doing that. But that's initially why I went to school. That's probably what got me to school, writing essays, being able to write and tell stories about what I was seeing. I was making sense of the world, right? And, um, you know, I, I did a lot of music. I did a lot of rap, hip hop, I recorded some, some mixtapes and things of that nature. I did a little bit of this when I was at the University of Michigan, actually working with Dr. Melissa Valerio, who was, you know, part of this, this issue. And, you know, somehow I lost all that between like 2008 and 2009 and like literally the last two years. You know, I think the process of being conditioned and there I say indoctrinated about what knowledge and knowledge creation and knowledge production looks like for a field like public health. Even though it's like, you know, there's definitely a heavy social science element, we still didn't really view the hearts and these types of expressions as a part of the knowledge making process, the meaning making process. And so I think that for me, the last year and a half has been kind of recovering that, excavating that, bringing it back to the surface and trying to stand that into my work, not just as a person that lives outside of public health, but as like my full self showing up in a public health space saying, listen, you know, like, this is how I see the world because I've always seen the world. Nas and Nina got me here and I'll be damned if I, I leave out the roots of Nazanina and my scholarship from here on out, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not prepared to do that. <laughs> so I think that uh, carving this space is critical. And I think this conversation is just one of those things that will help us open up some more of that space. Oh, I, I love that, Ryan, because I think about my dissertation and it's in three parts. And, you know, as of right now, what I've proposed, you know, there's going to be a scoping review, but there's also going to be a performance piece like research engaged theater and not because I'm going to read a bunch of things and regurgitate what I read, though that's important, but also because of my lived experience. And I'm coming from a BFA in acting and a master's in arts and ed, so why would I discard that just because I'm in a public health education program? And thinking about, you know, more so like artists not just being good performers or presenters of the traditional research styles and, and ways that academia has said this is how you report this or report that, but just also in the way that we show up and the questions that we ask. I love that as artists, we are both mirrors and windows and in thinking about like what constitutes health and what constitutes safety or what constitutes art or public health even, we're able to bring our art, bring ourselves and say, oh, actually the definition is expanding. Watch us in action reflect and encounter this reality, which is new and ours to be shared. Yes, yes, yes. I'm still processing what you just said, and I love that. And I'm thinking about putting the public back in public health and that it's meant to be shared and experienced and that this arts piece 
through whatever medium is really bringing it back to the people and thinking about just like going through my master's program for public health. It's like, oh, how are you going to disseminate your findings? Oh, we'll do an article or go to a presentation for a conference and then you'll do a one pager for the community. But like, is that truly disseminating and involving the community in the understanding and connecting with the research? And so I just think that that's so, I don't know, it's innovative. It's, it's new to have a performative piece for your dissertation. And I'm still processing what that might look like, but that's part of being ingrained in this academia of what do, what do we call knowledge and, and how do we decide what counts and what doesn't count. And for who, Arden? I mean, who taught us to refer to the community as the community? When did it become that? When did we no longer become a part of it? When was it no longer ours? When were we no longer people of the community, of our community? studying, working, pursuing scholarship, I, I don't know. But I think that my piece may not look any different from that of another performance artist, a solo performance artist. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's a little bit more this or that, but those are the things I'm thinking about as you say, and I'm excited. I don't know what it's gonna look like, but you know, we're all gonna figure out together. Yeah. Being at this intersection, I know, Ryan, you do a lot of qualitative, and it's being at this intersection of, are we part of the community? Are we part of the research world? And like, we should be part of both. But like you said, there's this degree of separation that we kind of, as researchers, no longer are part of us. It's not, we're not doing it with, and there's that strange little hiccup that you totally, yeah, you just identified that. Ryan, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think one, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the, the, the fact that, you know, the fact that we don't know, Shanae or Arden, like what this is going to look like and feel like, and it's not to say that there aren't other scholars or other, other people out in the world in the US or otherwise that are doing these things, but the fact that it's not centered, that it's not even a part of the common knowledge, it's not even a part anywhere near mainstream discourse of public health or health equity or knowledge production, right? The fact that we don't even, the fact that we have to center ourselves so much in the art of imagination and reimagining what our field looks like at this moment in 2021 is enough is all I really need to know about public health and public health history and public health science and what it represents and misrepresents, what it includes, what it excludes. And I don't think it's an accident. I think it's systematic. And I think that, you know, for me to be in a space as a, as a someone who's trained in social epi, who did applied practice, you know, epi in, in practice, numbers, 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 empirical, 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 right? I don't throw shade on those things in ways of making meaning, of, of making sense of the world. But what I do throw a hell of shade on is the fact that we, public health seems to think that that's the only thing that matters unless we can somehow get into this idea of reductionism, essentialism by qualitative methods and things of that nature versus helping using those methods to help us ask better questions and, and get these deeper meanings or whatever like that. But I think that part of it, why we're in this space, while we don't know so many things about what this is going to look like, and you know, Sinead, for your work, how it's going to land, when I write poetry for an academic audience, which is bizarre because I'm, I'm putting citations in it, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, I'm like literally spoon feeding line by line to the readers. Like, like honestly, no one, I can't think of a better way to do it because there's this element that Tony Morse talks about, about writing for, about the white gaze, right? And I'm convinced for me in knowledge making production processes in public health, there's a reason why we don't have poetry and creative arts and creative expression in there systematically. And I think it has to do with the roots of what public health science and knowledge production look like rooted in what Zubiri and Bonilla Silva refer to as white logics and white methods, right? This idea that is wrapped up in positivism, making absolute factual truth out of the world, that we can just get more information and do this and do this and do this and do this. And it's always from this attached objective 
apolitical neutrality position where it's very much colonizing someone's experience. And I think that that's what allows us to get to the point where we don't know what these other knowledge production or knowledge expressions can look and feel like is because we've been conditioned that the only way that counts as knowledge is if we remove ourselves from it. So we're no longer in the community, of the community, with the community. We're not doing it for the community. We're doing it about them. And the only way we can do it about them and have it be objective and seen as a legitimate knowledge is if we take this approach to it, right? And for me, that's, that's just rooted in white supremacist settler colonial logics that I just can't ride with. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's certain elements of the methods that I kind of come from that, that, that the epistemic background that I, I still value. And I don't think it's a matter of like getting rid of all methods and only relying on one. It's not that at all. But what it is, is that, you know, it's kind of like this idea about public health and healthcare, right? We have like, you know, 10% of our resources on prevention, 90% on treatment, even though the other, the causal relationships are like the, that structure is the other way around. I think that for me, what I'm getting at here in this long roundabout answer is like, yo, like, I think maybe 90% of our scholarship should just be like us talking about things that usually aren't talked about. I don't know. Like, is that, is that the way the move is forward, right? But it's crazy to think that like, we don't really know what this is going to look like still at this point, but that's also why it's exciting and what energizes me. And that's why I'm looking forward to seeing what you do today, for sure. I, I really appreciate what you just shared, Ryan, though, because I'm thinking about how I'm doing, I did a lot of heavy work to attribute or to acknowledge or put into words that like artists have been articulating public health crisis for centuries. And so in some ways, arts and public health, arts and health is not new. The professionalization of it is with these growing programs and certificates and programs and certificates and publications. And so I think my hesitation, even as I am super excited and like a cheerleader of it is that we haven't reckoned with the histories of these institutions or these sectors or these industries. And so as I'm in this process of working on my program in public health, right? And it's been a journey, right? Not being accepted to public health MPH programs, not being accepted to all of the theater programs, you know, that I applied to, because I was always talking about doing something in addition to theater, right? And thinking about health. I guess I just wonder, how do we pause even as we accelerate so that we can catch people, but also make sure that we aren't coming from a place of this is the beginning because there's so much history. You know, I think about, you brought up Nina Simone and you think about Mississippi Goddamn, that, that song and it's in its response to the bombings and the assassinations and just the, the, the crisis that, that we were in, but also Billie Holiday and then her song Strange Fruit and how the government literally spent time, how should I say, speeding up her death, right? As opposed to sending her to a hospital, they sent her to jail. And I think that, that th those are the parts, the intricate parts of policy that I'm like, oh, how do, we, how, do, how do we catch that so that the art can flow and the creativity can flow because racism, white supremacy, heteronormativity, all, all of these things are, are suppressing our creativity and our access to our imagination. And so how can we bless the conditions that allow our creativity to flow? So I guess that's what I'm thinking of. And I think it has a lot to do with reckoning with our histories. And I think a lot of people in our industry may not even be aware of our history. Absolutely. Sorry, Ryan, I know you're about to comment, but I just wanted to say the different of like putting words to experiences and all of these things that we're living in a moment where the door is open to so much possibility on the other side. But if we don't 
think about who opened that door for us. That door wasn't just open. That is not an accident. And I'm thinking, you know, with Pride Month and I'm looking back and I'm thinking as a queer woman who has given me the rights to live my life the way it is now and the freedom and the excitement that we have for the future. And we're not turning around and saying, People have been fighting for this for so long to be recognized that now it's like a professional thing to have, you know, arts and public health. What a fascinating time to be in, but, you know, such an opportunity for us to overstep and not acknowledge if we're not careful of what the folks before us have done, been doing, and continue to do that just goes under the academic professional radar. Yeah, no, it's critical. And I think it's... um... I think outside of public health, I think this is happening, right? There's, there's fields that are not connected to public health at all where folks aren't forgiving, um, where it didn't take until 2021 for folks that even knew that Tulsa massacre happened, right? Um, like if I'm learning about this my freshman year in undergraduate, despite taking African-American studies classes, but that's, you know, how long ago was that? And now folks are just, now it's just becoming mainstream, right? It's like, I think there's, there's fields where these things are being talked about and articulated in ways. And I think art, as a part of a, a creative expression from the margins, right? This idea that this power that we have from the margins, right? As artists, as creators, right? I think those discourses are, are had. They're just not had in public health and they're not central to public health and what we do. And so I think that the task and the challenge and the opportunity really, and the excitement for me, and I'm sure for Sinead, is like, how do we bring that in here? And it's not to like, we're, we're building it new, but we're definitely like building it new in the public health discourse. And it's not to say that there isn't arts in health research, but you know, for the most part, this is using art as a method. I talk about this in the pieces and it's a special issue, right? We use poetry. We, we have cancer survivors write poems and then we take their poems and we, we do like qualitative analysis of the poems that the cancer survivors wrote. That's different. That's not art. There's something, there's something off and colonizing about that, right? Or we do like art therapy type things that are, are intervention that's using the art to do this health thing, but it's not art necessarily for the, the use of art or the, the use of art for revolutionary purposes, right? I'm thinking about what Tony Cape and Barr talks about in terms of idea that the purpose of like a creator, uh, a writer, an artist is to make the revolution irresistible, right? That's not how we've been using art in public health or health and medicine, a biomedical field, right? That's not how we've been using it. And for me, if we're not using it that way, then we're not really doing art justice. And I think that that's the opportunity that we have to, to bring to the center, right? Because I think that all I've seen in terms of art for the most part within public health and in medicine is art as method, art as intervention, art as treatment which is great. That's an and thing. That's an and, right? We do this and we do that. But for me, it's like, I need more of, I need more of this, you know? I need more of this other thing. And I think that that's kind of a, a bit of a new space, at least from my read of literature in, in, in the background, right? But it has been talked about so much, like in the other side, right? Public health has been a main staple of the art discourse forever. Since I've been aware of what music and poetry has been, every time I read a poem, anything from Langston and Lawrence Dunbar, Nikki G, all these people that I've read, when I read those poems, I'm thinking about embodiment. I'm thinking about pathways of embodiment and eco-social theory, right? I'm thinking about weathering. I'm thinking about all these things that are public health science and knowledge in the academic literature that artists have been talking about, right? I learned about ACES by listening to Nas and Cool G Rap. Everything you need to know about adverse childhood experiences, like I'm telling you, like I was listening, I knew what ACES were in 1989. I promise I was five years old and I knew what ACES were, right? There's a disconnect between that discourse of health equity and what the world looks like in terms of health and how we embody it and what public health scholars have been trained and conditioned to do, right? And it excludes systematically the fact that when we're talking about health inequities is people of color, 
as immigrants, as people in the LGBT community, it's class inequalities, right? These are not the folks that are actually on the side of things that produce the knowledge. They're not the editors of journals. They're not reviewing the manuscripts. They're not the PhDs. They're not the folks that are actually producing that knowledge, right? And so how is it that when we're talking about health inequities, the folks that are experiencing those burdens are the least represented in the knowledge production processes, but also the ones that their art from the margins is what has been animating and carrying them forth for generations, right? Like how do we end up in that situation? And I think that's where we have this opportunity to explore where this goes as artists and also as academic scholars. I'm just processing all of that. And I think, Shanae, I think you said artists are both mirrors and windows and, and there's just so much, so much to this, so many layers of recognizing the oppression, understanding the lived experiences of folks, understanding, like you said, it's, it's been going on and maybe public health just isn't centering it enough, but you know, that energy is out there. And it's just so important that we bring it in here. And I'm so glad that I'm able to share the space with you both because it's about having your voices here to talk about these issues rather than, you know, other white folks or other people who have more power and more privilege in the academic space. And so it's so exciting for me to be able to have this conversation with you both. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I also want to attribute, I don't think I said it, Julie Cameron talked about art being the windows and the mirrors to the world. And I can't remember the full quote, but she's the author of The Artist's Way and where I got my practice of morning pages. I really appreciate the book and the opportunity. I don't stick to all the things she said, but you know, take what you need. It's a toolbox. I think what I wanted to tease out, I think a little bit more with the two of you, was thinking about the process of being in our, our space. Like I am a young black woman, I'll be 30 in September. And so I think about, I think about my role, like my youth, and I think about my gender, and I think about my junior status within academia, if that should be the trajectory that I'm taking. And I also think about like, my resistance to being palpable or like palpability. I don't know, I don't know if I'm going in the right direction, but I guess because I don't want to be palpable, like I don't want to be a person that rises in the ranks because I'm considered nice or I don't critique enough or what have you. I think I'm thinking about our art and I'm thinking about Tony Kate Bambara's like quote because it like it sits to remind me about the revolution, just like our role, not as people who do free emotional labor, but also like recognize that this work is very much life and death for us. I think about an incredible woman, Amelia Brown. She actually was a keynote speaker at a conference last fall for NOAA, the National Organization of Arts and Health. And her keynote was about racism as a public health emergency. And she had committed her entire career to more recently, as she was in Minneapolis, she was able to allocate funds to artists. I think it was like $100,000 to artists in response to George Floyd's murder. She was thinking critically about what this looks like in city government. And she passed away just a few months ago, unexpectedly, from a heart attack. And I think that for, for Amelia, someone who I really looked up to and aspired to emulate because of her work, because of her place. I just think about how even while we're doing this work, society's not able to keep us safe. And I think, Ryan, you mentioned the people 
that we weren't able to keep safe even while doing this work. And so I think that's one of the things that I'm like meditating on. And I recognize that I'm in a, I'm in a soft space because I'm thinking about this grief and I'm thinking about the number of people we've lost both personally and professionally. A mentor passed away just a few weeks ago. And I'm thinking about her passing and I'm thinking about the performance piece she created called Sugar, Robbie McCauley. Uh, she wrote a piece called Sugar about her experience living with diabetes. And I think this art that we're creating is also of us in crisis. And I am thinking a lot about Amelia Brown. I'm thinking a lot about Robbie McCauley and their work being an articulation of that and how we were not, the world was not able to keep them safe. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing those thoughts. I think that that's, in many ways, that's a that's a large part of this unspoken space that we're in right now, I think, in public health, right? Not just for arts in general, but in public health broadly, that as we see, you know, the, the more mainstreaming, for better or for worse, of conversations and the discourse about health equity and what that looks like and anti-racism, uh, anti-oppression, and trying to bring that more into the fold of of default public health orientation and practice and research, right? And I think that there's this, this, this thing where, and this is maybe just assuming too much, or maybe it's not, <laughs> it feels real to me, <laughs> but like the folks that have had the mic and had the floor, had all the journals, had all the research funding, had literally had it at their fingertips for so long, for generations to tell stories about health, population health, what causes it, how we can respond to it. The folks that have had that power in that space and those tools and those, those different instrumentalities to tell this narrative of health equity and population health inequities for so long, I'm not convinced that they're in a situation where they can feel the losses that some of us are feeling. Like, I'm not, I'm not so sure that a lot of the folks in public health are able to understand that when we're out here talking about what we're gonna do about racialized police violence, and we have empirical research, we have theater, when we have poetry, what we're going to do about black maternal and child health, right? And we have, you know, the empirical research and we have the policy arguments, and we have the conceptual frameworks and we have the art to tell these stories, right? I'm not convinced the folks that have held the space and held the mic for so long, understand what it's like to put your entire life into your work, knowing full well, you won't be able to save the folks that you love the most. Like that's the nature I think sometimes when we show up carrying the histories and also the power that we have when we show up. We are coming from these, these, these spaces on the margins, right? And so for me, I think there's a certain element of a willingness to bring your full self in, to be passionate, to put it all out there and to engage politically and directly speak to power and call people out and call people in as necessary, right? I think that's been missing for far too long in public health. And so what's been happening, at least from, from my read, is that like, Shanae, as you're saying, like we're out here doing these things and we're finally able, like there's a, there's, there's three of us in the room now of a million people, right? And that's I'm making those numbers up, right? There's three of us here. Now we're doing the space. But the thing is, the entire time we were trying to get here, we were watching our own people die. And it didn't really seem like anybody else got that much more motivated about it, right? And so what does it mean for us to finally be here now? And we still are powerless in the grand scheme of things to stop, like, you know, my mom or my brothers or my aunt, you know, like, to stop that from happening, right? So what does it mean to put yourself into this work and still not really be in a position or situation to really make it materially real, when it matters most, right? Because that's what I think, Shanae, when you say we're showing up in crisis, like, yeah, I think that honestly, like, um, that's kind of what it means in many times to be a scholar of color or a queer scholar in these spaces in the public health conversations, right? Because every day, it's not just professional, like we're living it and we're embodying it, right? It's not a hypothetical third personing. I'm curious, I want to geek out, I'm interested in this. That's not what this is for a lot of us. But for too long, most of us 
haven't actually had the privilege to be in the space to move this conversation in that capacity forward. And so I think there's an opportunity here, but I don't think it, we, should, we should lose sight of what you said, Shanae, because it's real. Every day we show up, it's like resistance. Um, and I don't know, like I hate having that word resilience, you know, like there's so many critiques of that. And I would throw some shade on that word myself too, but it's like, like, duh, we wouldn't be here otherwise, right? But it's like, well, where are y'all at? <laughs> like, let's, let's move this forward. Yeah, I, I truly, I hate the word strong. I hate the word resilient. I am like, I just want to relax. <laughs> and I think a lot about, you know, moving beyond what you were talking about, which is so, I think, helpful too, as I think about like collaging or building mosaics as a method, right? In my, dis <laughs> in my, dis in my dissertation, I'm thinking about like also just what the arts do to create time to like imagine and reflect and curiosity being a privilege and how the arts engage with time. Understanding that it's a construct, right? Arts can speed up time for us. We can cover a lot of history in a short period of time, but it also can help us relax. It can also slow down a moment for us. And so I guess I'm thinking a little bit about that too, how art in some ways helps us protect the very precious time that we're gifted because tomorrow's not promised and the next hour is not promised. And so how are we in the process of championing, engaging, making this a part of our careers, also protecting a part of our art for ourselves and our loved ones. And I think that might also help us avoid what could become exploitative, like all over again. <laughs> Absolutely. And in thinking about how art is both this place of healing for ourselves, but without having to become the spokesperson for other, whether it's people of color or other minorities or other oppressed groups, but keeping part of the art to yourself, but also that if there's a space for it. So as Ryan was saying that all these people with all this privilege to talk and write about, about people now that we're finally here, how do we keep some of that to ourselves? And, and when we bring our whole self, art happens because it has to, because we're fighting and there's so much that can't be said that needs to come out in these other forms. But then are we relegated to only talk about those things? And are we only appreciated for talking about those things? Because like you said, it's not, it's not a fun, exciting interest. This is the life that we live and art is how we express that and we share that and we're not resilient because of it. It's not a choice. It's, it's what we have. It's the tools in our toolkit. Yeah, that made me, that kind of made me think about, this is kind of unrelated, but I, I could try to make it related. <laughs> I just, I was reading something the other day about, you know, as a poet who's writing and, and publishing and, you know, traditional poetry presses and then also like academic public health journals, that's something like 90 or 95% of the published poets, like last year, the year before, they were still white based on the best understanding. So it's kind of like, even in that space where there's, it's, it's, it is art, you know, the whole thing is about art, but it's like, well, the ability or inability to hear and feel what's being said and put down the page. Like, I would hate to think that like, like, like writers of color, just, they're just terrible poets. They just can't write, like, no, it has to do with who's reviewing it, who's assessing it, who's appraising it for which purpose, from which perspectives, what do they want to hear? What do they want to feel? What do they think? What is, what is, what is good to them? And I think this is the same thing that happens in academic literature is that we have to think about and public knowledge production in general, but also when we start thinking about arts, right? 
and who's reviewing the manuscripts and who the editors are, who the associate editors are, right? How, how does like the citation thing work, right? If it's a commentary piece, is that counting for the impact factor? Things of that nature, right? If we're still going to use those things, like all these systematic ways in which things have been designed such that we can't actually bring art into the space and be taken seriously as scholars, right? That type of element, I think, is one thing, but then it's also like Arden and, and Sinead, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, like, well, this goes back to that thing I want to mention earlier about Toni Morrison, about like writing beneath the burden of the white gaze. And I think James Baldwin spoke about this too, like the little white writer. I think he said like the little white man is inside you or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the phrase is. Um, but it's like, I want to show up and write exactly what I want to write and put it on the page. But I know full well, even in 2021 with everything that's happened, I didn't get published. I got a piece right now that I've let poets read and they're like, yo, that's fire. And I'm like, I thought it was fire when I wrote it, but I've now been turned down from six different journals that don't want to publish this poem, right? And so it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, well, who's reading it, who's appraising it, and, and, and that type of thing, right? There's no transparency, it's very opaque. And I think that what that ends up happening is that if we are trying to bring our art as our story, as stories of our family, of our community, to center that as valid knowledge for, for either expanding the imagination within our field or for just advancing the discourse or speaking to hearts and minds because like odds ratios don't vote. People vote and people don't vote based on odds ratios. So maybe they'll vote based on being inspired by like some art, who knows, right? Let's try this out. But if we're trying to do that and produce that end only to be shut down at the screen door basically, we put everything into the pieces and put everything into this work and it's basically we're up against a structure, right? And now I think that it starts, it can wear down and compromise artists. I think any artist that has tried to get published or try to have an exhibit, try to have, you know, a show, try to get their, their art going has had to deal with rejection. I think every academic that's ever tried to go through peer review has had to get, deal with rejection. But I think it's a little bit different when you're now talking about uh, what folks are bringing into the academic space from the artist world, right? It's a whole different level of appraisal. Who's qualified to make this decision and who's not? And if we're not careful about that, I think there is a risk that we end up doing some harm to the artists that otherwise would have benefited their entire field. Yeah, right. And this is like, again, like an extension of what you're talking about, but not specifically related. But in some ways, I guess so. While I was in my master's program for arts and education, I was at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, I took some classes at Chan, their School of Public Health. And I was in this one health communication course. And we were able to share like our ideas or what have you. And I had shared an update on my final project that had to do with like using digital storytelling and essentially like oral histories in, in conversation about health literacy. And this hospitalist was like, uh, don't you think you should like go to medical school before you like plan to like teach doctors? And I said, well, I'm not, not teaching medical procedure. <laughs> like this is, you know, this isn't related. And he's like, I don't know if I'd listen to you if you didn't also like go to medical school. And I was like, well, had all of your patients gone to medical school? Cause I really do feel like you should be listening to all of them. Right. And there's just this moment where they're like medical students who are like also getting that additional MPH, there's hospitalists, what have you in this room. And I'm really, I'm the, from my understanding, one of the only artists in the room, right. Thinking about arts and education in this way. And I just, I feel like that's he, that hospitalist is probably not the only person that thinks that way. Like, I'm not going to listen to you unless you do this or that or you have the same credential. And so I think that even within our industry of health education and public health, there's a there's a massaging of sorts, <laughs> a needing of sorts, because the people that are reviewing our our articles, our submissions 
more than likely have been in the field a little bit longer and probably also have some air or understanding of that's not the way we do this. And I think I, I'm trying, I'm trying to lean towards grace. And I think even the process of like this perspective, this commentary, like had to do with recognizing that whoever I shared this with, whoever was reading it was needing to digest it from the place they were reading it from where they were and not necessarily from the place of my offering and meeting people where they're at. I mean, there comes a line between like meeting people where they're at and having grace and educating, et cetera, and also meeting people where they're at and recognizing that actually what you're offering is harmful, as you said. Uh, and that's something that I think I'll continue to reflect on for years to come. Like at what point is it even abusive to even suggest that a person is able to encounter my art objectively? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it gets to the point where it's, you know, like, we have to show up, right? We got to show up and, and try to move, carve this space, right? To open this space up, right? But I, I think that there's a point where, because there's a point where like, we don't continue to push, it's like seeding power. But it's also one of those things that goes back, I think we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, I hate hearing these words about being strong and being resilient and like perseverance and things of that nature, right? I think these are all great qualities and characteristics to have, but when it's structured into the way that our fields work, <laughs> um, such that the consequences of that are landing disproportionately on somebody's bodies versus somebody else's bodies. I think that that's where we um, can run into some real issues. And I'm afraid that, you know, like if we don't, if we don't you know, explore this conversation about getting the arts into public health in a way that is capable as resistance, right? As a revolutionary type thing, not just as a method. If we're not careful about that conversation, I can definitely see how it can end up getting flipped around such that the folks that are already benefiting now they're benefiting because now their art and only their art that's disproportionately right. I mentioned before, it's like, you know, 90% of the published posts are still white. How the fuck does that happen? I can see a future where if we're not careful about this, about power and the way that white supremacy reinvents itself, that we can see arts and public health really doing this thing and embracing it. But then we, 10 years from now, we see that 90% of the arts that are published in public health journals are still by white scholars or straight cis scholars, things of that nature, right? And so I think there's a, a need to always be on top of that and to push but I don't know for me speaking for yeah, myself personally. And I think this is a great point too, to like bring up artists with disabilities, disabled folks. I find myself like in my work wondering about accessibility and wondering about all, all of those things and recognizing that I'm, I'm still in process. We're all constantly evolving and needing to and needing to adapt and, and recognize that very progressive people can still make mistakes. And so that place I think is also because of the perfectionism that I think entrenches our industry and our commitment to like do no harm. Even while boasting that we are harming disabled folks who are harming people with different abilities and who are neurodivergent because of these systems in place. And I'm, I'm constantly just like thinking about, well, how do we reorder this to be a grace-filled space? How can we bring more grace into this space? How can we bring more peace so that people show up with less anxiety? Because, you know, I, I'm, I haven't run the control trial or the, the longitudinal study, but I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really on my on, on, on my toes about this and thinking about the connection between creativity and population health and just how how we need to increase 
access to folks' own creativity. This world is, is, is strangling it, for lack of a better term. It is quieting it. And I think that's why, like, I look at kids, I look at children. I just spent some time with two of my nephews who are six and three. And I'm like, there is a commitment to play here that I need to relearn. And I think if we're talking about arts and health, like, I think as much as we're addressing the isms, I want to also protect again that, that place of play. And I guess that kind of mirrors that part of like relaxation or what have you, but like, I, I want us to be able to play. <laughs> yeah, it's critical. I think that, yeah, art as critique, art as uh, healing, art as resistance, art as play, you know? I can admit, I think in my mind, I'm just thinking now, it's like this entire conversation, I've been mostly like art, you know, if we can get into the art space, it can be like, you know, the, you know, art is an expressive way to, to draw attention towards uh, a pressing conversation, a pressing need or uh, offer critique or just open a space for new ideas and imagination. But it could also just be like, hey, let's just have some fun with it. Why not? That's public health work too. Absolutely. And, and just wrapping up this conversation that's gone, you know, so deep in so many different directions. I'm just thinking about to kind of echo some of the things that we've talked about, this, this thing of being palatable for academia and within this whitewash space that we're occupying, but also pushing back against meeting people where they are when that comes to academia in terms of obviously meet the community where they are or meet us because they're saying, when did we stop being part of the community? But then pushing back against being palatable to this white understanding of knowledge and then also just fostering a space for arts and public health where it's empowering and has the right people at the table and the right people valuing that knowledge at that table as we continue to move forward in public health. I know this has been such a deep conversation in so many different ways. I wanted to offer one last chance if you had any closing thoughts between the two of you. Yeah, I think this has been great. I think as always, I think this is like the second time I've done these conversations and it's like, man, this should be like a symposium or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, this has been great. I do think that the, you know, one of the core things to consider is how this work will land, you know, as individual, as individual works that we produce, the things that Shadi and I have put in this volume and other contributors to the, to the special issue have put in there, how they land, how they're received, how they're perceived, I think is going to be uh, critical. I think there's a, there's a kind of an inflection and pivot point potentially to kind of make this and center this and make this kind of a, a normal space, a normal expression of knowledge. Uh, I think that for me, at the end of the day, though, it is a, this question of palatability that extends beyond just whether or not we use the arts, but it's how. And I've mentioned this a couple of times or alluded to it um, and mentioned directly. I, I think that art needs to be focused on revolution and resistance and expressive and, and, and healing and, and love, right? Like this idea of showing up simultaneously out of love and resistance, right? Getting back to like Audre Lorde, right? I think if our art is not doing both of those things, then I think that it's really easy to see that get co-opted and it turns into this other form of set of colonial extractivism, right? Where we use art to take something for our own invocation and we strip the art away from its source, from its history, from its context, from its cultural significance and roots and value, right? Where it now becomes a way to commodify that, um, and the Smith talks about decolonizing methods, right? That knowledge becomes a commodity. So if you can imagine how we are already, as people that are people of color, trans, queer, immigrant, low-income, differently abled, are already mined for our data. Our bodies are being mined for an odds ratio from someone who's not experiencing what we've experienced. They haven't experienced what our communities are experiencing, right? We're already being mined for traditional public health. 
I can see this going very wrong, where now we're being mined for our heart. And I think that that's definitely a type of epistemic violence and oppression that I'm not really, uh, I'm not really down with. So that's why for me, it always has to be about resistance and that revolutionary potential, right? And I'm not really concerned about whether it's palatable. I think that what makes it palatable are the same structures that have excluded us from the space to begin with as scholars, as potential academic scholars, right? So I think that for me, the focus should always be on what we want and not what we think is possible, right? What we want, I think it should be where we start at in some level, right? Otherwise, I think we see too much before we get started. Yeah, I would just say that last fall, a new professor arrived to Teachers College at Columbia. She's on my dissertation committee, Dr. Davinia Gregory. And she taught a class on racial capitalism in the arts, race and the arts, how cultural industries contribute to racial capitalism. And I think that there's a lot for us as health educators, artists, that tunnel <laughs> of, of fluidity that like exists in these sectors to learn from artists who've been navigating that space of commercialized art. I think that's why community is so important and like being in community, not just with people in one of the traditions. And I think that's what I'm most excited about. I like looking for spaces, creating them, cherishing these communities where people like ourselves are together, not necessarily always working on the same thing, but like, I don't know, maybe there needs to be some form of like a collective of, of sorts, but just a, a space, a touch point because we're so scattered across these disciplines. And I think more than anything, all the more reason to, I think, like make a signal boost, like, hey, I know, like the echo, the Batman symbol, like signal, symbol, I don't know. Essentially, just like you're out there. And that is, that's, a, that's essentially what they want us to be, scattered, disconnected, missing kinship. And, and, and that's what I care so much about. So I'm so grateful for this conversation and how, how, how rich it is, but also how it just also like taps the surface of all that really needs to be engaged and thinking about revolution, thinking about the arts, thinking about the power of words and even the silences that surround those words. So yeah. thank you, Arden. Thank yeah, you. thank you both for your thoughts and as I've been saying, sometimes I'm just like speechless in the middle of this, just thinking about all these topics that you are all bringing up. And so it's super exciting. And thank you both so much for your time and your space and your thoughts today. And I will put links to the actual pieces that you've written for health promotion practice in the episode description. So if you're listening, go ahead and check those out. Super exciting and really good reads. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.